Welcome to Logos on Tap, formerly known as Theology on Tap. Uh, kind of went through some rebranding. I'm your host, Christian Lunday, and I've got my co-host here, Derek Sessom. Hey, hey. What's up, man? Not much, man. Good to be back. Good to be back. Um, our beer of the day is water this time. It's holy water. Um, you kind of drank it. Hydrates you. Yeah, the H2O. It's good for you. Today's special guest is the founder for For the Martyrs. She's a senior ambassador of Students for Life. She's a humanitarian. Uh, she can feel colors and smell sounds. Her name's Gia Chacon. <laughs> What's up, Gia? Hi, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for uh, sharing my special talent that not many people know of. <laughs> no problem. So our thought of the day uh, comes from Matthew 5, 43 for 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's kind of a perfect segue into telling us about you, Gia. How did you become a Christian? Um, well, I was raised a Christian and I just want to say really quick before we get into all, to all of that, we're recording this on Holy Thursday. So I think that fits in perfectly, not only, um, with my mission at for the martyrs, raising awareness about the persecuted church, but also, um, just to the theme of today and God's mercy and, um, him knowing that Judas was going to enter the garden and betray him that night. And still he called him friend. And I think that that's just such a powerful um, scripture and just uh, calling for us as Christians to pray for our enemies um, and think about how many times we betray the Lord, right? And he still loves us and calls us friends. So um, wanted to touch on that really quick. And through that kind of going into uh, my own personal story, as I said earlier, I was raised in a devout Christian household. I was blessed to have a mother who always instilled in me the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, but as time went on, I think many of us can relate to this. I had one foot planted in my faith and one foot kind of dipping into the world. And the older I got, the more that the foot was dipping into the world became a ball and chain that pulled me deeper into heartache and compromise. Um, eventually I looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize the person looking back at me. So I said a simple prayer. I said, Lord, I know that anyone who is in you is a new creation and I want that new creation life. And within one week, the Lord totally turned my life upside down, right? God wrecked my life to fix it. Um, and I think we all have those moments where we pray for something and maybe we're not so sure what we're, what we're getting ourselves into. Um, but that's really where it started. And so in the span of a week, I quit my job. I called my grandmother who has a nonprofit organization. And I said, grandma, do you have any trips coming up? I just kind of want to get out of town. She said, yes, we're going to Egypt and you're welcome to come. One week later, I was in Egypt and it was in Egypt that I experienced the faith of the persecuted church for the first time. And that was really the first time that I realized that Christians were being persecuted in a serious way and not just old people, right? Not just the older generations, but young people just like me were willing to lay their lives down for Christ. That resonated with me so deeply. So while in Egypt, surrounded by the faith of the persecuted church, I made the decision to give my life completely to the service of the Lord. And the rest is kind of history. And now years later, here I am. Awesome. Incredible. Yeah. Nice. Egypt, man. Yeah, it's truly a God thing. He'll he'll definitely make his will done. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes it takes us to right getting out of the country, getting totally out of, you know, out of the country in a 
metaphorical sense, right? Sometimes we right. need to get totally out of um, the habits that we're in, the environment that we're in for God to really speak to us and for us to realize that he's calling us to him. Yeah. So was it, it was a lot of your grandmother's inspiration. Is that what I heard as far as you find yourself in Egypt and how everything get, got kicked off? Yeah, definitely. And she's definitely been a mentor, not just a grandmother to me, but she's been a mentor to me over the years. And um, when I came back from Egypt, I began working with her and working for her nonprofit organization. And through the years, we had the opportunity to, I had the opportunity to travel with her and do work again throughout the Middle East, but particularly with the Iraqi and Syrian refugees who were persecuted under Islamic extremism. And it was actually the experiences with the refugees in particular, when I was sitting down with them and hearing their stories, that the Lord placed such a burden on my heart for the persecuted church. And so through prayer, um, continuing to uh, sit with the persecuted, hold the persecuted, um, persecuted Christians, meet them face to face and hear their stories, that eventually led to the founding of For the Martyrs and my personal work with the persecuted church. Awesome. Um, so as far as the persecuted church is concerned, China is projected to have over 300 million Christians by 2030, uh, which is incredible because that's going to force the CCP to have to reckon with uh, Christian leaders probably in their government, which is awesome. But um, do you feel there's a correlation between uh, persecution and church growth? Yes, absolutely. I do. And I love that you're bringing this up because I think it's incredible. When we think of the persecuted church and we think of Christians dying for their faith, oftentimes we associate that with the church being really small. And that's absolutely not true. So usually what's amazing when we are looking at these nations that Christians are suffering so greatly for their faith, the church grows. A lot of people will say, well, how is that possible? Why is the church growing? And it's because Christians have to make a stand. They have to make the decision. Am I willing to lay down my life for the gospel? Am I willing to really risk everything for my faith? And when we look at these countries, when we look at the Christians who are laying their lives down, the church flourishes because of their great faith and because of the trials that they're going to face for being Christian. So to answer your question in short, absolutely. I think there's a correlation between persecution and the church growing. I think one of the reasons perhaps why the church is seeing a lot of young people leave the faith in the United States is because we've had it really easy and we take our religious freedom for granted and our faith for granted. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you think about it, there's no irony or mystery to those in the faith because it's, it's the nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus literally founded his ministry on that, you know, the meek will inherit the earth, you know, that when we're weak, he is strong, that it's truly from this, this suffering and showing love to others that is when thriving actually happens. Absolutely. It, it's so, it's unfortunate, but it's almost like just the nature of where we are and, and who we serve, how we need to place ourselves of, of kind of facing this persecution. A lot of people forget that our church was founded on uh, Christians being persecuted and of course on Christ himself being persecuted, uh, being sentenced to death on the cross and then of course with his glorious resurrection but Christians from the beginning of Christianity have faced persecution, but a lot of people are surprised to know that there are actually more Christians dying for the faith now than in the times of the early church there's actually more Christians today who are being targeted and executed 
because of their belief in Christ than the times of the apostles that we read and even in the times of the first century. So the Christian persecution is a growing issue and it's an issue that's not getting a lot of attention by mainstream media and even within our communities of faith. Which actually is a perfect segue and we kind of need to pontificate about it more is why do you think the Christian persecution is ignored by most of our population in America and media specifically? Yeah, I think that this issue is seen as politically incorrect. It's not politically correct, so to speak, to talk about Christian suffering, especially, again, though, when we're looking at the United States and we're looking how the, at how the church flourished and really the United States was founded on people, or founded by people who were fleeing persecution from their own nations. And uh, embedded in the founding of our country is Christian belief. So we've had a beautiful... Um, prosperity of Christianity in the United States. So I think uh, over the years, and now of course with the, uh, you know, bias political, uh, the political bias that is now in our media, it's not popular to talk about Christian persecution. It's not popular to talk about Christians dying across the or across the world and even the Christian suffering that's happened here in the United States that's been rising over the uh, past couple of years. Um, I think that Christians are seen almost as an enemy to uh, the leftist agenda that we're seeing here in the United States and even in places like Canada and the United Kingdom, Australia and Ireland. Yeah, I completely agree. I also think, I mean, it makes me think about the Colorado baker who's getting sued again. Um, and I, I feel like most people ignore it because they bathe in their own comfort and to deal with a story like that or, or a Christian or Christians that are going through actual legal persecution like the Colorado Baker is, uh, it kind of tugs at the fabric of their comfortable lives. And I honestly think that Christians nowadays actually have a problem of idolatry with their comfort about their lives. Um, and we don't know how to hate that instead of, or how should I put this? We don't know how to love Jesus and hate our comfortable lives. Um, and so that, that hurts us whenever it comes to reckoning with actual legal persecution. We'd rather ignore it than actually uh, suffer with the Colorado Baker, for example, or uh, you know mourn with other people who are actually suffer suffering. I think on top of that, I think uh, for non-Christians alike, I think they just kind of want to believe uh, that Christians really aren't that persecuted because we believe that this is a Christian country. So it would be sort of illogical in their opinion if we think that this is a Christian country, but we're claiming Christian persecution in our own borders. Um, and so it kind of seems illogical to them. So that's why I also think that as far as the, as far as the uh, atheist left is concerned, uh, they don't actually put any seriousness to actual Christian persecution. What do you think, Derek? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you you think about it, it's it's almost like the being blindsided by the majority. You know, I mean, being in a culture that has Judeo-Christian values and the the sense of of individual liberty and how all that comes into play and really where that stems from by what we know is true by our faith. You know, the freedom that we get from Christ. Right. It, it's something that has evolved and then devolved into this place of, you know, kind of hedonism, really, where it's like, okay, pleasure above all, don't want to step in this place of discomfort. So like, yes, I, and I think that the church is the church in America um, is honestly silent on this issue. 
there are people, there are Christians, and uh, we kind of, I guess, a lot of people, uh, conservative Christians have been kind of coining the term woke Christianity, right? So we have the church bowing to uh, whatever the leftist agenda is. Nobody wants to ruffle any feathers. Nobody wants to go against the grain, right? And Christians are kind of not only staying in their comfort, which I think is true, but also they think that it's somehow more loving to just agree with everybody than it is to speak the truth, which we know is absolutely not biblical. Um, and we know that right. when we adhere to our biblical principles and biblical truths, that that will oftentimes leave us um, having discord with people in the sense that it's ideological discord. Jesus himself said, and he promised us in scripture that you will be hated by the world. No servant is greater than the master. If they hated me, they will hate you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Um, but I think it's also important to note that another reason why Christian persecution is probably not recognized by the church here in the United States as much as, as, much as it should be is that uh, for the persecutions that we are suffering, for example, Christian, like you said, um, that the legal proceedings that are happening against Christians. And even um, if you've been following the Equality Act and what could have come from um, you know, Christians uh, being told and the church being told by the government what we are and what we aren't allowed to do, we're not taking this as seriously as we should because it's not being, um, you know, our, it's not our heads being cut off by ISIS, right? Or it's not being pushed out of our homes by Islam terrorism when really we should take these uh, intimidations of Christianity that we're seeing much more seriously because what happens is it happens slowly and then suddenly and we can see that in countries like China where the government has completely overstepped into what the church is allowed to do and what they aren't allowed to do and Christians are jailed, fined, and uh, oftentimes put to death because the church is not staying in line with what the government is mandating. So it's very dangerous and my message to Christians here in the United States is to take this seriously take the intimidation that we're um, facing here in our country seriously, but also speak up for Christians around the world who are suffering. We're not disconnected from the sufferings of our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution in China, in Nigeria, in North Korea. We're one body. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. I also think, um, to add something else, the Christians have kind of been uh, the boy who cried wolf when it comes to persecution, at least in America. And that makes legitimate claims of persecution like we see with James Coates in Canada uh, a problem because we perceive certain things as persecution when really it's probably just regular disagreement. Um, and because we call that as persecution when it's really not, it makes our, our actual cries of persecution less legitimate. Um, and so it, it, we actually have a chance with the James Coates incident. I know he's in Canada but we have a chance to actually uh, gather around James and his church and his family and to have our voice heard both in Canada and here uh, because we don't want that to become the standard, uh, our judicial standard in America. I would say, uh, you know, here, even in California, we have pastors um, in California. We had some of the strictest COVID lockdowns in the whole entire nation. And we actually had our governor, Gavin Newsom, say that, we were not allowed to sing in church. He actually said that Christians yeah, weren't allowed yeah. to worship and he closed our churches. And uh, finally we were allowed to hold outdoor services. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that he greatly overstepped his um, government power and his government overreach into the church by mandating us not to worship, not to gather, which we know goes directly against what 
our biblical mandate is as Christians. So thank God for some churches um, and some pastors, some bold leaders here in California that were defying those government mandates and actually won their court cases. Um, so again, it goes back to Christians taking a stand, taking that bold stand, not being afraid to go against the grain um, and also defend our religious freedom. We have constitutional rights as Christians for our religious freedom. I think a lot of times we forget that Christians have just as much religious freedom as everyone else when we're looking at these cases. So it's important that we're um, sticking up and standing up as Christians to protect to protect our First Amendment rights as well. Um, and I, just to touch on your point really quick, that's the Christians cry wolf. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that oftentimes when we're speaking up against these injustices that we're facing here in America, they're not being taken seriously enough. So I would say, um, be bold, don't be afraid to speak out. And now is really the time because uh, there is a growing attack on Christianity here in the United States. Certainly, yeah. yeah. It's actually a like, you're perfectly positioned to have a commentary on this. So like, especially with the case study of California during COVID and everything going on, which is just madness. Um, I mean, what would be like, how would be, how would your response be to so many people in the faith, so many Christians that really toe the line of Romans 13 when Paul is saying, Hey, you need to submit to your government and, and all of how that is and how people are trying to walk this space of, okay, well, we're being peacekeepers here. Why should we try to disrupt the peace? We're just trying to help. Whereas exactly as you said, like constitutional rights are being stepped on here. Like, what would be your response to that? My response would be that uh, we adhere to the government so long as it does not disagree with our biblical mandate by God. It's first we are uh, obedient to the Lord, his mandates, the biblical mandates that we have as Christians, our responsibility as Christians. And in doing so, uh, we also would, you know, be a good, or, you know, follow our civic duty, right? so long as following the government does not go against what our Christian duty is. And we can look at China as the perfect example of this. So what's happening now, um, there are government permitted churches, so state sanctioned churches, and the churches are allowed to operate freely so long as they do not say anything that goes against their communist agenda, China, uh, the government of China's communist agenda or their atheist agenda. If Christians go against what the state mandates, then they are put in jail. Uh, they can be fined with public disorder or fraud against the government. And we have hundreds of thousands of Christians that are in communist China jails right now for uh, going against state mandated uh, restrictions within their church or state mandated laws within their church. We can also look at the early Christians. So when we're looking at um, Rome in the first century, why were Christians being persecuted? Christians were being persecuted because they were not um, doing the sacrifices and sacrificing to idols in the first century and other reasons that uh, were maybe more political, but it started off with Christians not obeying the government rule to do the sacrifices to idols. So first we have a Christian duty. We have a biblical duty to follow what God is commanding us to do. And then in doing that, we have a civic duty to our government. So here in California and across the United States, we know that we're supposed to worship the Lord. We know that uh, we show our love to God by worshiping him. We know that we also um, have in Hebrews, it says, do not forsake the gathering together as some are accustomed to doing. So we have a biblical mandate also to gather. Um, and I would say be bold. We know that we are fighting from the place of victory. 
I keep saying this, I keep going back to be bold and don't be afraid to make a stand. Um, but it's true. It's the more that the church speaks up, the less we'll see this intimidation by the government. So it's important that we're not being afraid to, um, you know, again, adhere to our civic duty so long as it does not contradict what God is calling us to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the, uh, the Jeff Durbin, John MacArthur, in some cases, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. Uh, kind of deal. So you've obviously been, you've been to Egypt, you've, you've been around the world. Um, most Christians, American Christians actually don't know suffering like the people that you've seen uh, during your human, humanitarian work. Uh, so can you contrast our experiences with theirs? Yes. I, and I love that. This is actually probably the first time I've ever been asked that. So I love that you're talking about this. Um, I think it's different. So we have Christians in the Middle East, right, where they're suffering under Islamic extremism. And it's not just in the Middle East, it's in parts of Africa as well, like in Nigeria. Uh, Christians are the major are majority in Nigeria. However, there is growing Islamic extremism. And now in Nigeria, there's actually more Christians who have been killed because of Islamic extremism than in Syria and Iraq, which is really scary uh, comparison if we're looking at the two. So there's a growing Christian genocide in Nigeria. There was, of course, a Christian genocide um, in Iraq and Syria under ISIS when we had the mass exodus of Christians from the Middle East uh, or from Iraq and Syria, and they had to take refuge in neighboring countries like Jordan, where I've traveled to be with the refugees, as well as Lebanon and other countries. Um, so we have that serious persecution where we have Christians that are facing beheadings. I mean, we'll just say how it is. You will behead it. You, it's really the option of convert or be killed or you have to leave. So there's that kind of suffering that's happening as a result of persecution. In other places in the Middle East, we have Christians who are seen as second and third class citizens. So Christians will not have the same rights as uh, is Islamic um, citizens have. So Christian businesses are seen as less favorable than somebody who's Islam and owns or Muslim and owns a business. So, and then we also have the targeting of Christians in the education system and that's in the Middle East. And then when we're looking at China and North Korea, we have the government, again, this communist agenda to take control of the church and the church is seen as a threat to the government. So they mandate what Christians are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And again, the, uh, the uh, punishment for going against the state is imprisonment, um, labor camps, and oftentimes death. How can we compare this to what's happening here in the United States? Well, I would say that there is a growing hostility against Christians in the United States. And we know this to be true because uh, with the BLM Inc. riots, for example, uh, we had people who were in high positions in BLM Inc. calling uh, certain aspects of Christianity white supremacy and then calling for the destruction of Christian property. And across the United States, we saw churches burned, we saw Christian property desecrated, um, and we even saw the Bible burned on camera for the whole world to see. Our suffering in the sense of Christian property being targeted, I would say is growing rapidly. Um, but really, I would say the biggest comparison between the persecution or the intimidation that we're facing in the United States is more similar to what's happening with the government overreach um, in China. And I would say 
when we're seeing the COVID lockdowns, especially, and now we're coming kind of on the end side of that, thank God. Um, but what we saw with COVID, I think is really was almost a test to see how uh, how willing are Christians going to comply? How willing are the churches going to comply? Um, and to what extent are we willing to comply without, you know, raising our hand and saying, hold on, this, this violates what God has commanded us to do. Um, so I would say that we're facing intimidation by the state. And um, thankfully, we're on the tail end of COVID here and our churches are starting to open up. But I believe that if and when serious Christian persecution comes to the United States, it will be because of government overreach and by the means of socialism. I agree with that. Absolutely. So <clears throat> with that contrast in mind, do you think there's something that American Christians can learn with how foreign Christians deal with suffering? I, I tend to think of, I think his name was Pastor Wong in China who penned a letter uh, right before he actually got arrested. Um, I don't remember everything that he put in there, but his attitude uh, and his, you could tell by the way he wrote it, his heart was in an incredible place uh, right before he got arrested. And I just don't know, I don't trust myself to be in, to have that same attitude if persecution were, ever, were to ever come to here. But I don't know if the general populace in America could actually deal with that type of per persecution as gracefully as he did. So do you think there's something that we can learn from uh, people like him or, you know, the Coptic Christians that have suffered in Egypt? Uh, what do you think? Absolutely. I mean, we're looking at people, not again, not just the older generations, not just pastors and church leaders, um, but we're looking at Christians, everyday Christians have made the decision to lay down their lives for the gospel. Can we learn something from that here in the United States? Absolutely. Every single day, we have to make the decision in our daily lives, right? And there's small decisions to lay down our lives to the gospel, for the gospel and lay down our lives for the sake of Christ. Jesus said, let any man who should come after me take up his cross and deny himself daily. So we can, you know, have in a sense, my grandmother made this, said this quote, we can have little martyrdoms every single day when we lay down our lives, when we choose loving our neighbor, when we choose loving the Lord more than ourselves, we lay down our lives for Christ in that sense. We are all called to make a sacrifice for the gospel and for Christ. Can we learn something from the persecuted church? We can learn from their beautiful faith, their willingness to lay down their lives, and also the strength and unity of the church. Here in the United States, there's a lot of division um, across the denominations, but in places throughout the Middle East and even in China um, and these other countries where they face serious persecution, the church is much more unified. When you're being persecuted for the sake of Christ, they're not saying, okay, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Are you evangelical? Are you non-denominational? Okay, well then we're gonna persecute only Protestants and not Catholics. That's not what's happening. We have, are you Christian? And then if the answer is yes, that is why you're being persecuted. You're being persecuted for the sake of Christ and for the cross. So we can learn also from that unity that the uh, international church, the persecuted church has here in the United States. I think that if the church was more unified, we would have a stronger voice against the intimidation that we're facing here in our own country. Certainly. I, I just had, I had a question, and this, this might just be a reflection. Do you have, do you think it might be play into some piece of, you know, there's so much of a piece of, of American culture that's like ready to have like a physical fight. 
that's like ready to gear up and you know do whatever's necessary to fight in tyranny if somebody's kicking down your door versus like what paul was saying in ephesians 6 where it's like hey that's that's not our enemy our enemy is forces of darkness and principalities and rulers and authorities. It's not some, you know, it's not your neighbor. It, it's the, the, there's these darker spiritual things that are guiding these ideologies and guiding this persecution to continue to prevail. Well, we know that, right. As Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. But we should absolutely recognize who the enemy is using. Right. So we know who we know that our enemy is Satan, right? Or the evil one. But we also know that there are people operating, you know, as vessels of darkness versus as vessels of light, as we Christians are called to be vessels of light and to be ambassadors of Christ. There are ambassadors of the evil one here on earth. And we can look to every, you know, aspect of society and see that, um, I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, I think that maybe in a sense, we're called, you know, to love our neighbors more than ourselves, but oftentimes speaking truth and being bold and um, speaking that truth with love is what's charitable. Um, So I think also, if we look at the persecution of the first century and we look at even um, the apostles in, you know, who were ultimately put to death. And if we look at the book of Acts and we read it, right, we can see that um, there was a stand, but it wasn't the stand that maybe people were expecting. Nobody was taking up arms and, you know, going to a physical fight, but Christians had to take, they did make a stand. It wasn't Um, you know, that they were subtle and that they were complying. It was, um, you know, uh, for example, before Stephen was martyred, he went and he testified of Christ before the council. And then he became the the proto-martyr, right? So, and same with Paul, he had to testify. Um, So Christians are called to take a stand. Does that mean that we're going to be in a physical fight? I don't think so, but we are in a physical fight. um, And that requires us to, um, you know, take a position. I don't know if that makes sense or if that answers your question properly. No, I think that nail hits right on. Yeah. 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 I, I don't think there are very many uh, American Christians, specifically the Boogaloo boys that you're referencing. <laughs> uh, I don't think very many of them actually heed Paul when he says that he counts everything, literally everything as rubbish Yeah. Uh, in comparison to Christ. And I don't, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, there's a stu- such a stark difference in the way American Christians deal with suffering as opposed to, to Christians around the rest of the world. Um, Which brings me to my next question. It's a deeper philosophical one. Uh, So we know that there is the problem of evil. So we have uh, atheists who will say, if if there's a God, how come there's evil in the world? As if uh, the existence of evil means that there can be no God, because if God is all good, uh, then he should just be able to alleviate the evil in the world or it never existing in the first place. So what would you tell someone who shies away from Christianity due to the philosophical problem of evil? For evil to exist, for us to recognize that there's evil existing, we also must recognize that there's good existing, right? So I think that um, to recognize that maybe there are evil forces on um, here on earth or evil things that happen, we also must recognize that there's a counter to evil and um as Christians, we know that God is goodness, right? So I think um, to recognize evil means that we should also recognize goodness. But I think that 
what we also could relay to someone who's atheist or maybe somebody who's questioning how could God allow this to happen? This makes me question my faith is that God is, uh, God gave us free will. He gave humans free will. He gave all of us the will to be able to choose him, to choose goodness, to choose light, to choose uh, love, or we can choose darkness and we can choose evil. Um, but he loves us so much that he gave us that will. Here on earth, we, all of us, whether we're Christians or not, choose good or we choose evil every single day. So I think that um, there being evil on this earth does not mean that there's no God. It just proves that God has given us free will um, and uh, that part of his lovingness and his mercy toward us is that he allows us to choose him. I don't know if that answers your question, um, but I would really emphasize that because I think a lot of times people see God as this uh, right white bearded old man who's sitting in the skies and he's commanding everything to happen. Um, but we know that on as Christians, we know that it's not that he's dictating everything that's happening here on earth, but rather he's allowing things in his providence. And part of that is allowing us to choose good, to choose him or to choose evil and choose darkness. Yeah. So, so obviously I, I think a lot of that's correct. Um, personally, I used to struggle with the problem of evil a lot. That was one of my biggest hurdles uh, coming to Christianity uh, legitimately. And I know that there's like two types of evidence uh, f that kind of refutes the problem of evil. So we have the logical evidence and then uh, the logical argument and the evidentiary argument. But none of those are actually uh, emotionally satisfying because, I, I mean, I can sit here and argue with an atheist the slippery slope argument or uh, the teleological argument for suffering and how in God's fine-tuning nature – uh, allows suffering because it's it's there's a greater good component, but none of that actually is uh, emotionally satisfying. And the only thing that I can think of for me that was as emotionally satisfying as I think exists is seeing and hearing about uh, uh, the stories of Christians that have suffered in foreign countries and how they they actually come out of that suffering with a better relationship with God than they did before they went in. In fact, I think of uh, Pastor James Brunson, I think, in Turkey, who, I mean, I'm, he was wrestling with God that entire time for those two years in Turkey. But uh, the certainty that he had whenever he came out of the prison and was actually released back into his family, um, his certainty in God, his love for Jesus, the, the zealousness that he had coming out of uh, his persecution there, um, I think that's one of the most emotionally satisfying arguments to the problem of evil because how can someone like that who's endured a lot of suffering still love Jesus uh, and still serve God with all of his heart after enduring things like that? I mean, and you see stories like this all the time. Uh, there's a movie about the Olympic runner who is a gold medal, like a three-time gold medalist or something like that, and then he becomes a POW uh, in the Japanese war, I think, and he goes back there like 70 some odd years later and was, he was very forgiving of the Japanese people and even wanted to meet the general that was actually inflicting a lot of the pain and suffering on him to tell him he loved him and that he forgave him. And a big part of that was because Jesus shaped and molded that man's heart uh, and, and changed him. And actually they grew a more intimate, deep relationship with each other. And I think that's, probably the most emotionally satisfying argument 
probably not the most logical, not the most evidentially based, um, but I think it's the most emotionally satisfying. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, it, it's the power of testimony, right? I mean, it's something that can be overwhelming, and it's... I, I can't I can't help but really kind of reference this this whole point even if you wanted to take um, like a more logical argument to it and so like C.S. Lewis he wrote a short book you know he says okay well your conclusions with Jesus really comes down to three things um, he's either a he's either a liar he's a lunatic or he is Lord and you have to reconcile with how you approach that and I mean you see people obviously come to that conclusion that no this this is my Lord, this is the King. Um, I am going to lay my life down because he is good and he reigns. Um, and I, you can't, you can't deny that. You, you can't deny that somebody would be willing to do that or the power behind that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. Um, so for this next portion, um, I don't know much about Catholicism. I'm a Calvinist. So about 500 years ago, we were mortal enemies um, now I think we're cool, but uh, I wanted to ask probably some basic questions for our viewers about what you believe and how that would kind of be different between Protestantism and Catholicism. Um, so as far as the Apocrypha is concerned, uh, is the Bible preeminent? Is the Apocrypha like at the same canonicity as the Bible or are they two different levels of uh, canonicity? Uh, well, I think across the board, we believe that the Bible is the written word of God, right? It's the living, uh, breathing, right? Alive word of God. So um, there's that if it boils down to it, scripture, right? Um, but we also have this aspect of tradition, what's been handed down to us from the church fathers as well. And we believe so wholeheartedly that the two are not a contradiction, um, and I think that's where we have a lot of maybe misunderstandings between um, other Protestants, right, or um, other denominations of Christianity is they think that tradition somehow contradicts scripture. Uh, but we believe as Catholics that the tradition was born out of scripture and the two uh, really go hand in hand. Okay. Um, I got to ask this for the Pado baptists that probably listen to our podcast. Um, do what have? do you think about baptizing babies? Uh, well, a baptism is just a dedication to the Lord, right? So um, we believe that when we baptize um, our babies, right, that for the record, also not all Catholics are baptized as babies, although we should say, you know, we encourage people to baptize them when they're young, but many Catholics, especially when they come into the church, they have a um, baptism in the church, um, but we also recognize baptisms outside of the church. So if you were baptized, let's say at Saddleback Church, which is uh, not too far away from me. Uh, we recognize Great that. Church. Yeah, um, as a Christian baptism. So um, baptisms when you're younger, it's the parents saying, we're dedicating this baby unto the Lord, just like uh, our Lord was dedicated in the temple after eight days of him being born. Uh, we believe that it's the same, it's very similar in the sense that we're dedicating our children unto the Lord and making a commitment to uh, raise them up in the faith. Uh, we do also believe that the baptism is, um, of course, uh, the washing away of sins and the new reborn life. Um, and we also see in scripture that children were encouraged to be baptized and the, uh, the Lord himself said, let the little children come to me. Um, so I don't know if that's 
you know, a theological definition, maybe the way that a lot of uh, people are looking for, but that's uh, what we are taught and uh, what we teach as Catholics. And also I would encourage anyone who has questions about the Catholic church, has questions about what Catholics believe, uh, you can find this by Googling the Catechism of the Catholic Church and pretty much any question that you will ever have about Catholicism um, is written there in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and it's the basically the doctrine of the church, our theology. So uh, there's a whole section dedicated to baptism. If you would like to read it um, more clarity, I probably didn't do it justice, um, but if anyone wants more clarity on baptism or anything else, it's in there. You did great. I'll post a link to the catechism there. Um, what about the Pope? So in Mormonism, uh, they have a prophet, and that prophet is the preeminent messenger of God, per se. So if he were to ever contradict the Book of Mormon or the Bible, they would, they would take his word because he's the messenger of God. Now, they don't ever posit that he'll ever contradict the Book of Mormon or the Bible, um, but that's kind of what they believe. So where is the Pope kind of in a similar standing with Catholics, or is he still more or less uh, on the level of just regular humans? Uh, first of all, we believe that the only person who is Lord is our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's the only person that we see as anything other than human. So uh, first of all, we to answer that little last part that you said, um, the Pope is absolutely human. And um, there have been many bad popes in the history of the church, just like there are many bad pastors in the history of, you know, Protestantism and um, other denominations of Christianity. But I would say a very simple way of looking at it, a very simple way of looking at it is seeing the Pope as the head pastor of the Catholic Church. So uh, we are looking to him to uh, give us direction um, as far as how we should live our lives as Catholics. Uh, we're looking to him um, for clarity um, on issues of faith and it's issues, um, I wouldn't say issues in scripture, but um, you know, clarity on how we can live out our faith and deal with the issues that we're seeing in everyday society, just like you would look to your head pastor for, um, you know, to lead the sheep, right? To um, help you grow closer to heaven and closer to Christ uh, through relationship. Um, now, does, if the Pope were to say anything contradictory to what we believe, what's written in the catechism or uh, what we, know to be truth as Catholics, what's written in scripture, we would absolutely call him out on that and say that it's heresy, right? If he said anything, like if he, um, you know, a lot of people, for example, were under the impression that Pope Francis, which is the current Pope, said that um, it's okay to bless gay marriages, which we know he recently came out and had a, a plain statement that said it's, we will not be blessing gay marriages. So um, when people were confused about that or when people were misunderstanding what he had said, Catholics across the United States were up in arms saying, please bring us clarity on this statement because we know that this directly goes against what the Bible teaches and what the church teaches. Okay. Uh, my last question, I don't know if Derek has any, but who's your favorite Catholic author? Mine is G.K. Chesterton by far. Um, so who's yeah. yours? G.K. Chesterton is awesome. He's almost like a Catholic C.S. Lewis. So <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, that's a good one that you picked. But also um, I love reading um, the lives of the saints. So oftentimes, um, for example, there's a saint in our church, which is probably when I say saint, people are starting to sh 
like shudder on the other side of this podcast, right? <laughs> like, um, but we look at saints as just people who lay, lived a faithful life to Christ. Um, and we can look at their lives just like we would C.S. Lewis um, and learn from their lives and from their teachings, right? So um, for example, there's a saint named Faustina who um, she has a whole diary of her conversations and her prayers to the Lord. And so um, I love reading her writings and I feel that I have a lot to learn from her faith. Um, modern day authors, I really love Edward Shree is he's amazing. And um, maybe some young people would like to read like Leah Darrow. She's awesome. She's um, a Catholic speaker as well. And she's pretty amazing. Derek, do you have any Catholic trivia you want to ask? <laughs> wasn't what I mean, I could be completely wrong about this, but wasn't Tolkien a Catholic? But yeah, people believe that he was. Yeah. 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 Then he's my favorite author. <laughs> <laughs> Did he write any theological books or was it just Lord of the Rings? He was an author. Uh, I mean, it counts. <laughs> but, um, so you're a, an ambassador for Students for Life. Um, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so Students for Life is an amazing organization. I would encourage everyone listening to this podcast and um, to everyone listening, not only to follow Students for Life on Instagram, but to tell their friends and their family to follow Students for Life. It's not just for students on college campuses or in high school, but um, it's an amazing organization that's doing pro-life advocacy, boots on the ground work or grassroots organization that's mobilizing young people to uh, not be afraid to use their voice in the pro-life movement, but also giving them the resources um, and giving them a more clear vision as to the direction that the pro-life movement is going and how we can fight this battle that we're facing uh, with the culture of death that we are facing here in America in the uh, United Kingdom as well. Um, so my involvement as a senior ambassador, uh, I am an ambassador for the organization and I just really align with the message of Students for Life. Um, I think they're awesome and I think they're really reaching young people, which is important is to reach the young generation. I think that both another amazing organization is Live Action. Live Action and Students for Life are kind of the new face of the pro-life movement and they're really uh, reaching young people and our generation in a way that not only enlightens us to the reality of abortion, but uh, mobilizes us to show us our place in the pro-life movement and how we can advocate for the unborn and for all lives. Is there any um, uh, is there any involvement with like the current legislations that are that are out there? There's so many out there right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I would another thing I would encourage. I'm glad you brought that up. Is for everyone to pay attention as to what bills are trying to get passed right now. We mentioned the Equality Act. That's a huge one. There are several other um, anti-life, anti-women uh, legislation that's trying to be passed right now. So I would encourage people to look at that to answer your question. Yes, Students for Life is, um, they have Students for Life action. Um, so it's kind of the lobbying arm of Students for Life and they're much more in, heavily involved in politics um, and they can keep you up to date too. Like if you hear legislation and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know, I'm not really involved in politics or government, look at Students for Life action and they'll bring you a lot of clarity as to what's happening and what we can be aware of, um, what you know it, bills are trying to be passed and how we as everyday citizens can, um, how we can contact our senators and our Congress people um, to make sure that these bills don't get passed. Absolutely. Or do get passed. I mean, 
it's exciting times for us here in Arizona because we have House Bill 2650, I believe, yep. yeah. where there's actually like full bore, unashamed approach of outlawing that's um, abortion the, uh, entirely. That's the Jeff Durbin bill, right? Yeah, give him another shout out. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> We're trying to get him on. Uh, no shame. <laughs> Free plug for Jeff Durbin. Sure. sure. Yeah, and there are other states that recently have passed so pro-life uh, legislation. So you made a good point. Just as much as we should be aware of the anti-life um, bills that are trying to be passed, we should definitely stay up to date and advocate for those pro-life bills. Absolutely. Agreed. So Gia, uh, where can we find... For the Martyrs, any information regarding that, um, and also any of your future work. You are a published writer, aren't you? Yes, so um, I do have some articles out that you can read, um, but I would encourage everybody to either follow me personally on Instagram, at GenuineLeadGia, where you can stay up to date with everything that's going on um, as far as Students for Life and um, other organizations that I'm a part of. And if you'd like to get more involved in For the Martyrs and even attend our March for the Martyrs, which is going to be coming to Washington, D.C. this year, it's a march to stand in solidarity with the persecuted church. Um, you can get involved with us on Instagram at March for the Martyrs, as well as Twitter, Facebook at For the Martyrs. And you can head to our website, forthemartyrs.com. And on our website, you can find some of our blog pieces where you'll um, read some pieces by me and by our resident writer as well as learn about Christian persecution and know how you can be, learn how you can be a voice for the persecuted church in your everyday life. Awesome. Well, Gia, thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a great podcast. I hope you've had fun and I hope the listeners uh, are very informed now. Absolutely. On basic Catholic beliefs and baptizing babies. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. And thank you for giving a platform to the plight of the persecuted church. My pleasure. Absolutely. I don't even work for Chick-fil-A, but that's my response. <laughs> hey, there you go. Awesome. Well, we'll see you guys back here next week. Uh, I think we have Pastor Jeremy Candelaria. Uh, he's going to be fun. He's a pretty interesting guy. Exciting stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, go out, drink your waters responsibly. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. And we'll see you next time.